Hello. I want to welcome you to Every Woman's Grace. My name is Anne Bradley, and it's my great privilege to unpack these verses from Acts chapter 10. Um, As we begin to study this semester, we also are beginning a new direction in the book of Acts. The gospel, which began with the Jews in Jerusalem, is now going to be going to the Gentiles. We began with the church being established in chapters 1 and 2. The church was born. Acts begins with this great anticipation of the church. Jesus promised it in Acts, and he tells his disciples before he leaves, if you remember, that he has to leave this life so that he can send the Holy Spirit to be in every single believer. Verse 8 of chapter 1, hold on. Chapter 1, verse 8 is key to the entire book. If you have a highlighter, I would really encourage you to highlight that verse, verse 8 of chapter 1, because it says this, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Well, this is the church age in which we now live. And at the end of chapter 1, we see Jesus ascending into heaven, which was the beginning of the church age. But he, when he ascended, There was a reminder from the two angels, and they said, This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner. As you saw him go into heaven, you will see him return. The church began with Jesus being taken up into heaven, and it will end with him taking us up into heaven to be with him forever. But until then, we have a job to do, and it all revolves around Jesus and his gospel. We see the establishment and the growth of the church throughout the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7, we see the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 through 12, we see the church scattered from persecution. In um, chapters 13 through 28, we're going to see the gospel spreading throughout the entire Roman world. Chapter 10 is interesting because it highlights God's hand over the entire church and his people. It's his church and they're his people. And it highlights all the providential events that he uses to direct them. So... If you have a Bible, please open your Bible to Acts chapter 10. We have an oft-repeated phrase in the Bradley household, and it's this. Coincidence? I think not. We first began to use this phrase years ago when we heard Ken Ham, who's a creation scientist, and he was giving a lecture here at this church, and he would just go through all of the incredible details that keep our universe from absolutely imploding. And then he detailed the intricacies of the human body and how everything relates together and everything has to be dependent on the other thing. And with each 
detail, he would say, coincidence? I think not. Well, my husband and I adopted that phrase. And whenever we notice something out of the ordinary in its timing, in its people, or in its purpose, we'll look at each other and we'll say to each other, coincidence? I think not. People have come to see the sovereign hand of God as nothing more than a series of random coincidences. But the Bible is full of these moments in time, which might be swept away as nothing more than a coincidence, but for the fact that God's word shows us his activity, the involvement of God in all of it. Most Bible scholars agree that it would be statistically impossible for anyone other than Jesus Christ to fulfill all of the prophecies in the, found in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. Yet, there are those who insist that it is nothing more than coincidence. Really. What about the book of Esther? Remember the time that King Ahasuerus couldn't sleep? On the very night before Mordecai was to die in the gallows, which were built by Haman, he just happened to not be able to sleep, and he just happened to ask for the book of memorable deeds to be read to him, to put him to sleep. And it just so happened that the very page that was read to him recounted how Mordecai had saved the king's life. This ensured the preservation of Esther's uncle Mordecai and the entire Jewish nation. Coincidence? I think not. The Bible is full of God's sovereign hand over all of history. Chapter 10 of Acts is full of these events. The perfect timing of an infinite God preparing the hearts of two different men in two different places at the exact right time. Coincidence? We're going to see that our God is sovereign over every little thing. He sees, he hears, he directs, and he instructs, all in accordance with his will and his plan. It's all for our good and for his glory. Well, Luke Being the wonderful historian he is, he gives us this wonderful narrative regarding the spread of the gospel to the Gentile nations. And he begins by emphasizing how God had prepared Cornelius before he had ever even heard the gospel. We start in Caesarea. Caesarea is a beautiful city on the Mediterranean. I've been there. It's a gorgeous city right on the ocean's edge. And it was built by Herod the Great and named in honor of Augustus Caesar. Pilate had even built a palace for himself there. Down the road, about 30 miles, was Joppa, which is where present-day Tel Aviv is located. Cornelius lived in Caesarea, and he was a centurion, it tells us. He was a commander in the Italian regiment of the Roman military, and he was a bigwig. He was in command of 100 men. He was a Gentile and a pagan, yet he knew there was a God. He was devout and he feared the God of the Jews, but he'd not ever converted to Judaism through the act of circumcision. Now, this is an important fact in the story. These God-fearers 
were Gentiles who, although interested in Judaism, they were not necessarily converts. They observed Jewish laws, some of them, yet they didn't become circumcised. The Jewish people, they appreciated these God-fearers, but they were still considered Gentiles and not Jewish. And because of this, they would never associate with them socially. Outwardly, Cornelius was a good man. He lived up to the light that he had had. John 1.9 tells us this, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. It had enlightened Cornelius, but he had never been introduced to Jesus Christ. The story of Cornelius not only shows the necessity of the gospel, but it indicates that God will rearrange lives and circumstances to bring the gospel to those who are ready to receive it. Our lesson this week, uh, we had the opportunity to study the vision that Cornelius had. And so you already know the specifics of that. But there are just a few things that really jumped out to me as I studied this part of the passage. The first one was, God knows your name. What's the first words out of the angel's mouth in verse 3? He says, Cornelius. This is really an amazing truth. God knows Every person by name, every baby, every child, every teenager who has questioned God's existence, every human throughout all of time who has ever loved him and served him well, and as well as those who don't know him and even those who rebel against him. He knows your name. God sent his messenger and told him the name of the one he would interact with. There's a second thing I noticed in this. God knows your heart. Luke goes into great detail to let us know the heart of Cornelius. Why? Because our hearts are so important to God. What we believe, what we worship, and how it impacts our lives, they are all noticed by God. Cornelius was prayerful, he was generous, he was was well-respected and highly regarded because of the way he lived. But it was his heart that God saw into. Even though he didn't know the true God, he wanted to know the true God. And God was preparing his heart to receive the gospel. This is the way that God works. When a person responds to the revelation she has, even if it's very basic, God will make a way for that person to receive more. Remember Acts 8? God made certain that the Ethiopian eunuch heard the gospel from Philip. And then what about Acts 9? God literally stopped Paul in his tracks to give him the message of the gospel. God has always worked this way. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all all your heart. This is where we find Cornelius. He is religious, but he's not saved. God sent an angel in a vision to tell Cornelius to go get Peter because there's a message that he needs to hear. There are a few truths that we can pull out of this portion of scripture here. And the first truth is being religious, even devout, is not enough to save a person. 
That's so important. Being religious, even devout, is not enough to save a person. There's a third thing I noticed. God has a plan and a purpose for all of his creation. God sent an angel, a messenger, to Cornelius. Why didn't this angel give the message of salvation to Cornelius? Our God has given all of his creation a purpose. And it is in the purpose and the plan of God that mere humans like you and me, we're commissioned to give the gospel to other mere humans. What a humbling opportunity that we have. What a great responsibility we have. And what an awesome purpose we have been given. So how can we be sure that Cornelius had a heart that really desired more light? Well, verse 7 and 8 make it clear because he obeyed God. And he told him as, excuse me, how can we be sure that Cornelius had a heart that desired more light? Well, we know that from verses 7 and 8 because he obeyed God. Right away, he called the three of his personal attendants and sent them off to Joppa, just as the angel had instructed. Another truth that we can pull from this is obedience is a mark of one who fears God. Our lives should also be marked by submission to God's word, to generous communion, to fellowship with other believers, and a commitment to prayer. Obedience is the mark of one who fears God. I had a divine appointment once. Years ago, many years ago, uh, my husband and I were excitedly planning our first trip to Europe. We haven't been there a ton of times, but we've been a couple times now. And I was struck, I remember as we were planning this trip, by the notion that as wonderful as seeing the sights and enjoying the adventures we were going to have, there were new people that we were going to encounter. People who needed what God had graciously given to us, which is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. In the months leading up to our trip, we prayed for the people whom God would bring into our path, that life, excuse me, that he would prepare them as well as us for our encounter. Well, we got went on our trip. It was a cruise, and the two weeks of the cruise went by. They were fun-filled, and they were adventure-packed, but no real serious conversations with anybody about the gospel. Then we arrived in Switzerland. And this is what I wrote in my journal from that day. I'm going to just read it to you, what I wrote. The Shieldhorn, that's where we went that day. We rode the cable car up into the clouds where the temperature dropped to seven degrees centigrade for an incredible view of the Jungfrau, the second highest peak in the area. Unfortunately, the Eiger, which is the highest peak, was completely obscured by clouds, so we didn't stay at the top very long. After descending, we stopped to ask a question of a local worker, inadvertently making her miss her cable car to her own town of Murin after her long day of work, and this reduced her to tears. Well, this turned out to be a divinely 
appointed mix-up. Because after talking with Vera and seeing her sadness, she was so sad, I was able to share the gospel with her. We ended up taking Vera to dinner that night at a lovely little hostel restaurant on the side of a Swiss mountain with picnic tables, delicious food, and even a server with a dirndl skirt on. It was the most beautiful setting I have ever eaten a meal by. And we found out later, actually, that this little hostel restaurant is this tiny little place is Rick Steve's favorite place to eat in the entire country of Switzerland. We left Vera that day with prayer and a hope that she will indeed read 1 John and that God might save her from her sins. God had prepared my heart for our meeting. He had prepared the weather He had been preparing Vera for many years because she had been left behind by her boyfriend on top of this beautiful yet extremely and incredibly desolate and lonely mountaintop. He timed our meeting perfectly, that she would miss her cable car after work that day and have time to eat with us and talk with us about something she was desperately seeking. And that was some good news. God is at work in each of our lives just as certainly as he was at work in Cornelius and Peter's lives. Whom might the Lord be preparing you to deliver the good news to this day? Or how has he prepared you to receive his message this day? God is at work building his kingdom all the time. There is a receiver And there is a messenger, and both are led by God to a specific place and a specific time when he brings them together. This is another truth that every heart needs to be prepared by God if that person is going to receive the gospel. Well, God was preparing Cornelius to receive the good news, and at the very same time, he was preparing someone to deliver the good news. Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. God was preparing Peter to be sent to deliver the word of Christ. But if Cornelius was a sinner who had sought God, Peter was a believer who harbored some bigotry. We know that God had been working on and changing Peter's heart before he ever encountered Cornelius, because we first see how the gospel had changed Peter in Samaria. Samaritans, if you remember, were part Jew and part Gentile. There had been a mixing of these people after the Jews were scattered due to the persecution. Remember, In Acts 8, it said, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they came down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So his heart was being changed, but Peter still thought like a Jew. It wasn't that Peter didn't believe that Gentiles could be saved. The Old Testament is full of the salvation of Gentiles. Remember Rahab in Joshua 6, and then there was Ruth in Ruth 1. No, he he knew Gentiles could be saved, but he believed 
that the door to Gentile salvation was through Judaism. But Paul, Peter's defenses were being slowly broken down by the Lord. And we find him staying at the home of a tanner. And he goes up to the rooftop to pray as he waits for his lunch. Now, I've had the privilege of being in Israel, and I've seen these little houses. They're little houses, either stone or mud or something, and they're not real big, but they had flat roofs with either a ladder or a staircase that went up the outside wall, which doubled their floor space. They have weather very similar to California, so they can be out there enjoying this rooftop patio most of the year, and that is where Peter was, and he'd gone there to pray. Now, this is a normal prayer time for the Jews, the sixth hour, which is noon. So he's, he's hungry. It's lunchtime, and he wants to eat. I, you know, I just, you got to love Peter. He's so relatable. And he has this kind of strange vision, but it's so packed with symbolism. The sheet is let down, and it's filled with all kinds of animals. And if you want to check further, Leviticus 11 is a fascinating look into God's commands to his people regarding clean and unclean animals, what they could and could not eat. They were to be holy. They were to be separate and set apart from the other nations. But in this vision, he's told to get up, kill, and eat. Well, Peter is committed to his Jewish upbringing, and he's um, committed to being separate. So he says, no, I've I've never eaten anything common or unclean. You know, I I, I just saw myself in that. I don't know if you can as well, but wow, we're all tempted to think this way, aren't we? We can be so committed to what we think God wants for us that we don't hear what he truly wills for us. But God is not so interested in what we won't do, but he cares greatly about what we do. God wants a heart that will obey him. God understands Peter and he understands us. He patiently repeats this message three times. Now, Luke Ever the historian, is very deliberate in recounting this event. When scripture, which is the very breathed word of God, when it says anything, it's important. But when it's repeated three times, it's very important. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God is a very significant and very important event. And aren't we glad So let's take a look for a moment at at what cleansed and uncommon means. It says what God has cleansed. This is referring to a declaration by God himself that something has been made clean by him. Something that previously was not clean or it was not holy, but it now is. The psalmist spoke of this kind of cleansing that comes only from God when he pleaded with him in Psalm 51.10, some of our favorite verses here, create in me a clean heart, O God, and create a right spirit within me. Peter, you and I do not have the right or the ability to declare anyone or anything impure 
unholy or unacceptable to God. We cannot cleanse because only God can. And we cannot decide what God should or should not accept. Peter is still struggling to understand this, but he's going to learn that Jesus' cleansing sacrifice was offered for sin, and his command is to take this gospel to all ethnic groups, not just the Jews, but to all nations, even those he had previously considered unclean. Jesus has ushered in something new. The old ceremonial laws about food are gone, and there's no more separation between the Jew and the Gentile. They proved these laws that he's done away with. They had proved that people can never sacrifice enough to satisfy God. Jesus Christ alone is the perfect sacrifice that satisfied God. Nothing is to be considered unclean or common anymore if God has cleansed it. So at this very moment that Peter is pondering, what does this vision mean? The three Gentiles, or the unclean men, arrive at the gate. Coincidence? I think not. The Holy Spirit says to Peter, go with them. These Gentiles need the message, and Peter has it. Isn't it interesting that we live in a time right now where racial, political, national, and religious, even health differences are dividing people? A time where we have even heard from some preachers, sadly, that this is not the time for the gospel. Is it a coincidence that this is when we land right here in the book of Acts? I think not. Prejudice is prevalent in each one of us. No matter who we are or where we come from, it was evident in Peter and it's evident in us today. God knows this. He had a message for Peter and he has a message for us. Another truth for you here, God does not show favoritism. The gospel is for all who will come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. God is not partial. God is not prejudiced. And God is not biased. Deuteronomy 10, 17. Moses knew this from the beginning because he stated clearly this particular attribute of God when he said, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And then in the New Testaments, in Romans, we have, For there is no partiality with God. But the world is all of those things, partial, biased. They show favoritism. The world tells us that they have the answer to prejudice. That's a lie. The world will never, ever become united through a world leader, through the right set of laws or judges. Prejudice is not a social issue, and it cannot be fixed with societal changes. It isn't a political issue. It is sin. The world will never become united over changing our boundaries or our health care or our economy. 
The world has never and will never fix the problem of sin, which is the precise reason we have all of these issues and disputes in the first place. It's because of our sin. The world and its systems can never and will never eliminate partiality and prejudice because God alone can do that. Colossians 2.8 says this as a warning. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can unite people because Christ alone can change the human heart, which is where sin originates. Galatians three twenty six through 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Peter addresses this problem in the next section because he gives the good news to the Gentiles. He gets it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter understands God's words to him in the vision. The Spirit had said to him that the three men that are looking for you, you're to get up and you're to go with him and don't doubt because I have sent them. How do we know for sure that he understood? Well, he invited those three Gentile or unclean men into the home and stay the night. Then he asked Jewish brothers from Joppa to accompany him and travel up to Caesarea to go to the Gentiles. And then when he got to the Gentiles, when he got to Caesarea, to Cornelius's house, he confesses that he had had a wrong understanding in verse 28. He says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. But God, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. He gets it. It's not about food. It's about human beings. The Holy Spirit plays a prominent role in this passage. And we should take a minute and talk about who he is and what he does. So who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's the third member of the Trinity. There's Father, there's Son, there's Holy Spirit, and each one is God. In John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the Helper. He said that he would go away and he would send the helper, the spirit of truth, to his own people. Jesus said it's to our advantage that he goes away and he sends the Holy Spirit. According to Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, he says this about the Holy Spirit. His work is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. Remember, This is Acts 1.8 being played out when it said, But you shall receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit empowers us to witness to Christ. 
to give the good news because this magnifies Christ to the world. We're part of God's plan to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Like, how exciting is that? Here I stand today on the other side of the world, almost the opposite side of the world from Jerusalem. The gospel has come all the way to Los Angeles, California. And aren't we so grateful that the Lord has commanded this spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth because it's why we know him. The gospel is exactly what God had prepared Cornelius and his household to hear and what Peter is now going to share with these Gentiles. He tells us that in every nation, the man or woman who fears God and does what is right is welcome to him. Now, wait a minute, hold on. Doesn't Ephesians 2.8 say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but it's the gift of God? Look carefully at Acts 10.35. It's referring to the fact that in every nation, regardless of race, regardless of nationality or gender or religious upbringing, regardless of any other factor, Anyone, anywhere is able to receive the good news of the gospel when they truly seek it. And that is truly good news. So Peter succinctly lays down the gospel for the Cornelius and the others that are gathered around to hear. And there's just some wonderful points that we need to look at here. This is, this is in verses 36 through 43, and he starts in verse 36, and we start with peace through Jesus. The world hungers for peace. We want personal peace. We want relational peace. We want societal peace. We want national peace. It's even a joke that the correct answer in a beauty pageant as to what people most want is always what? World peace. It is also not at all a coincidence that the Antichrist will ride into the picture, into the scene with cries of, Peace and safety, says that in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. We humans have craved peace since we lost it in the garden. With that first rebellious act against God, we became his enemy. Peter begins with something so monumental, so amazing, which is peace. Peace with God and peace with people. Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith in this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of God. God has offered us forgiveness through Jesus. His wrath against our sin has been satisfied through his own son. And Peter leads off with this. God sent the good news of peace by Jesus Christ. Although enemies of God, it pleased God that in Christ we can now be reconciled to him. Peace being made through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.21 tells us that. But this good news doesn't even stop there. We also have peace with one another. This is how we deal with the sin of prejudice and favoritism that resides in each of our hearts. Ephesians 2.14 says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, 
He has broken down the middle wall of separation. So who are the both? They're Jew and they're Gentile. It goes on to say in verses 16 through 18 that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, which is the church, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, the Gentiles, and those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So much for those who preach that the answer to prejudice is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the gospel is the only answer to the bad news of sin. The second thing we see in verse 36 is that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus isn't simply the Messiah to the Jews and Savior to the Gentiles. He is Lord of all. He is God. And being God, only he is able to bring peace by removing our offenses. It isn't enough to want peace with God. You have to recognize that the peacemaker is God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, mighty counselor, almighty God. Paul states it this way in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The next thing we see in verse 38 is that Jesus was a man anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and power. This is really an important element of the gospel. God sent his only son who willingly humbled himself by becoming a man, fully God and fully man. He was tempted in all things just as we are, but he never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that. And as a man, Jesus lived the perfect life that we are unable to live. Look at the end of verse 38. It says, for God was with him. The emphasis here is not on the fact that Jesus is God. It's that he, as God, willingly became man and completely relied upon his father by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the exact same Holy Spirit that is promised to empower each believer who comes to Jesus Christ in faith. This same Holy Spirit comes to us And he shows us that Jesus is our deliverer. The next element in verse 39 is that Jesus, who did only good, died and was killed as if he were a criminal. Wait a minute. If Jesus is God, who offered peace between God and man, and he's Lord of all, he never sinned, and he has the power to to deliver us from the power of Satan? This Jesus was killed as a criminal on a cross, the most humiliating and painfully excruciating death created by humans. How can that be? Well, there's only one answer. God willed it. Luke confirms this in Luke 22. When Jesus prays before his arrest, he says, Father, if this is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. The crimes that demanded punishment on that cross were yours and they were mine. 
but Jesus is alive and he was raised by God in verses 40 and 41. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. This wasn't a spiritual soul raising. It wasn't like a ghost or something. It was a new resurrected body, a body with flesh and bones and even the glorious ability to eat. Luke 24 verse 40 tells us that. Luke reminds us that he and many other believers that were present at the time, they had been witnesses to this truth and that this is what awaits every believer in Jesus Christ after we leave these old corrupted bodies behind. Verse 42 emphasizes that Jesus is the judge. Isn't it interesting that we often leave this important piece of the gospel out? But it says here that while Jesus was walking on this earth, he told these people um, in his resurrected body, he commanded them at that time to preach to people and testify that it is he who ordained who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Isn't that interesting? That was very important because this is the reality. Every one of us will stand before Jesus Christ as our judge. At that moment, your status in this life is not going to matter. What your race, your ethnicity, your political party, your family, your friends, or even your church They're not going to matter on that day. It's going to just be Jesus Christ, the judge, and your sinful, old, dirty self. The unclean, creeping things that we are. But he decides who's clean and who is unclean. And he says where everyone will spend eternity. And what he declares in that moment, whether a clean or unclean, must be determined before we stand in front of him. And it's my prayer today, and it's been my prayer for weeks and weeks as I have studied this, that the Holy Spirit will reveal this to each of us, that he will make this truth real in all of our hearts. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and he came the first time to save, but he will come the second time to judge. Revelation 20.15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Ladies, there are only two eternal destinations. You will justly be condemned for all of your sins, and you will pay for them in everlasting torment, Or you will be acquitted and pardoned by the very one who took on himself your condemnation. He will then declare you clean and you will receive everlasting joy. Verse 43 emphasizes that Jesus offers remission of sins. And this is the final and crucial point. Don't miss it. It's what all the prophets and all the witnesses to the life of Christ proclaimed, that through the name of Jesus Christ, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. 
Whoever wants peace with God, whoever trusts Jesus as the peacemaker of God, as the Lord of all, whoever trusts that he will anoint you with the Holy Spirit, giving new life to your dead and sinful life, whoever trusts that this Lord is the one who lived as a man, who died as a man, but who rose again and lives today at the right hand of God, and that this man is coming back to judge every single person who has ever lived or who has ever died. If you trust that, this is the best news you could ever, ever believe. Another truth is that peace with God is being forgiven of our sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Holy Spirit confirmed this because Cornelius and those who had gathered to hear responded in faith and they were saved and they immediately received the Holy Spirit. And this was astonishing to the Jewish believers. Judaism was not the entry door to Christianity. Faith in Jesus was. Well, proof was needed and proof was given. These new believers began to magnify God and they began to speak in tongues. We have to remember that Acts is a narrative that was written during a transitionary time. God's people were moving from the old covenant to the promised new covenant. And for this particular time, particular signs were given to confirm that this was indeed the promised new covenant. Tongues are mentioned three times in Acts and always as a sign to immediately convince the people that the Holy Spirit was in them. Instant evidence was needed in each case. In Acts 2, we saw that the sign of tongues was used to convince the people that Jesus didn't leave them alone. In Acts 10, the one we're studying, it's a sign that the Gentiles can be saved and have the Holy Spirit too. The Jewish believers had to be convinced that the Gentiles were equal in God's sight to prevent disunity within the church. We're going to see this again in Acts 19, the evidence of the Holy Spirit. But today, we're not in a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. We understand that this gospel that the early church was commissioned to proclaim, and we understand that it's our assignment to continue spreading the good news of the gospel. And we understand that it is through the power of the Holy Spirit until he comes to take us with him again. Ladies, people are really hurting. They're really hurting all around us. The world is hurting. The world is groaning. We are drenched in sickness. We're drenched in death and lies and fighting and slander. We're drenched in God-haters and rebelliousness. We're drenched in lawlessness. This world is saturated in bad news, and it desperately needs good news. This is the time to be obedient to the command to spread the good news of the gospel to every tribe, to every nation, and to every person. Maybe you're hearing this and understand for the very first time that your hurting is coming from a heart that is still at war with God. You may even fear God, but you still need to place your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. If this is you, ask yourself this 
question. Is it a coincidence that I'm hearing this message today? I think not. Harry Ironside, the late pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, said this of his late father. As his father was dying, he kept muttering something, and the family couldn't quite understand what it was. But finally, they got it. Mr. Ironside was thinking about this vision. He was thinking about the sheet full of animals, and he was saying, a great sheet and the wild beasts and, 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 but he couldn't quite finish it. A friend bent over and quietly whispered, John, it says creeping things. Oh, yes, he said. That's how I got in. Just a poor, good-for-nothing, creeping thing. But I got in, saved by grace. I don't know about you, but I feel much the same way. God doesn't play favorites. And if by God's grace, you and I are acceptable to God, to be in his kingdom for all of eternity, then the gospel truly is for everyone. Pray with me. Lord, we praise you that you are not biased, that you show no favoritism. We praise you that your redemptive plan includes people from every tribe and every nation. We praise you that God's grace, your grace has been extended to us and you have cleansed all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, and you are in complete control of our lives, our nation, and our world. Please forgive us for our own prejudices, uh, which do not reflect you or do not honor you. Prepare our hearts and our minds for our encounters with hurting people who need the good news of the gospel and prepare the hearts and minds of those who will hear this good news and respond in repentance and faith. Please enable each one of us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be warriors for you, courageously wielding the sword of truth, which is your word. And send us out this day. Grant us the faith to believe that your sovereign hand is at work in every situation, every person, and every circumstance we encounter. And we give you all the glory. Amen.